Um, as you heard on the video, we're in a series called Inoculated, which is an interesting title, obviously, for a, ser- a series. But uh, this morning, we're going to be in part three of that. We're going to talk about the unedited gospel, but kind of give some context for what we're going to talk about today, kind of review. The last few weeks, we've been talking about this reality that it's possible for us to make a decision to give our lives to Jesus, to choose to follow him, and to experience a certain level of the good news or the gospel that we know that we're saved, but not enough of it to actually experience change or transformation in our life. And so realizing that there's a tension for all of us who choose to follow Jesus, that's what the whole thing of the concept of inoculation is, is you get enough of a sickness or an illness to make you sick just enough to actually make you immune to that thing in your life. And sometimes that happens with the gospel as well. So that's what we're walking through this this journey today. Because when you read through the scriptures and obviously you see evidence in people's lives that there's something that happens when the gospel actually penetrates our soul. When it actually hits, and we've used this analogy, which we stole from Tim Keller, which is the gospel's like a coin that goes into a machine. And unless that coin drops into the machine, it won't do what it's supposed to do. The gospel's the same thing. It's like we get a part of the gospel in us, but it hasn't dropped and transformed our soul yet. And so there's a process that God desires for us to experience that kind of change and transformation. And so this morning, we're, we're going to take some time to do something that I know um, we're going to talk about the unedited gospel, but it's going to be obviously abbreviated. We can't cover the entire gospel in the next 30 or 40 minutes. Um, but I want to kind of talk about uh, our clear understanding of what the gospel is. Week one, we talked about the gospel isn't the thing that's deficient. It's our hearts in terms of receiving. Talked about soil. Last week, we talked about fun topics like how we take the gospel and we make it political. We make it cultural. Remember those things? We make it about affluence. We make it about convenience. And so now today, we're going to talk about what is the gospel really? What does it really mean to understand? Before we, we get into that, we'll eventually find our way to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We'll look at verse 17 to 20, but that's way in the future. So you can keep your finger there with your Bible, and we'll get there eventually. But one of the things I wanted to clarify as we, we step into this today, when we use the term gospel, it actually causes confusion for people. Because for many of us, when we hear the word gospel, we think of a very focused, narrow understanding, and that is the gospel is what? The gospel is Jesus' death and his resurrection. I've forgiven for my sins, I have eternal life. That's the gospel. That's a very reductionist, small view of the gospel. We'll expand that a little bit today. The other thing, when we say the word gospel, um, we think of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, right? We call those the gospels. But that doesn't mean that all of the gospel is contained in those four books, And so it's understanding that the term gospel literally means good news, and it's the good news of God throughout human history, reconnecting everything, creation and humanity, back to him through Jesus. That's the the summary of it. And that doesn't start when Jesus shows up. That starts a long time before Jesus ever shows up. And it's one of the things as we go through today, one of the things that we struggle with our own understanding of the gospel and the world's understanding of the gospel is that we don't know the context of why we need the gospel. When we tell people that Jesus died and rose from the dead so they could be forgiven of sin, people go, so what? I'm good. I have no problems in my life. Yeah, things aren't as good as I want them to be, but I have no need for somebody outside of myself to save myself. I don't need that. Why? Because we lack the context of why in the world do we even need Jesus to die on the cross? 
Why do we need that? So this morning I want to talk about what is the gospel. So what we're going to do this morning is, is we're going to talk, really hit on three things. The story of the gospel, the purpose of the gospel, and the goal of the gospel. But the biggest chunk of what we're going to cover this morning is the first part, the story of the gospel. And what it is, in fact, if you've been through a line, you're going to you remember this is kind of what we walk through. And, and if you're going to be in a line next week, you're getting a cheat ahead of time of what you're going to experience. But to understand the gospel, we don't go to the New Testament. We actually go to the Old Testament. We start at the beginning of the story. And so the first thing about the story of the gospel is that the story of the gospel, if you want to kind of have something to hang your hat on, like where, where do I, how do I frame this? The gospel actually has three peaks with some valleys in between. Okay, usually we, we focus on what we'll talk about, the second peak, which is Jesus all about his life, death, and resurrection. That's the middle peak of the gospel. You have to go back to the first mountain peak, the first peak of the kind of the first most important part of understanding why we need the gospel. So as I've mentioned last week, um, uh, this is the same this week. We're going to w- walk through a lot of scripture. They'll be up on the screen for you, uh, so you can follow along as well if you use the Bible app. This is all already in the live uh, event that's on the Bible app that you have all the passages for. So the story of the gospel, the, the first peak, peak number one is this thing called creation. This is where the gospel starts. It actually starts in Genesis chapter one, believe it or not. It doesn't start in the New Testament. It starts in Genesis chapter one. So God creates humanity. So it says this in in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and all of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God decides to make humanity and does this amazing thing. It says, let's make man, let's make humanity, let's make male and female in our image, meaning the image of God. That means that we, whether we know Jesus or not, we are an image bearer of God. We have God's imprint on our life. But there's something very specific that God gives to us when he says that you're the image. We are now God's representatives on the planet. This is what's crazy. God creates for six days. He takes a break on the seventh day. And then he cre- when he creates humanity, you know what he does? He says, okay, my creation is done. Now I give it to you. Now I entrust it as an image bearer. You are in the image of God. Now you're my representation on the planet to take care of the very thing that I've created and brought into existence. So God gives that to us. That's pretty crazy, isn't it? That's good news, people. That's exciting. Like The, the God of the universe made this existence for us to steward and to do well with, which is a whole other message about how we take care of the world that God's given us. But God gives that to us. And so things are good because now we're, we're in relationship with God because God's created us. We're his representative on the planet. So we're caring for, the, for this, this thing called the earth and creation. And then in, in Genesis chapter 3, a major shift happens. And it didn't just happen thousands of years ago. It happens every single day of our life. So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, something happens. Humanity decides to make a decision apart from God's influence in their life. So you know, we know the story of Adam and Eve and the serpent comes and tempts Eve to eat of a fruit that God said, hey, you can have everything but that one, which is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what happens in Genesis chapter three, verse six. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to eyes and that the tree was to be desired to, be, to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Now, this is really where the gospel really has to come to bear. And this is what's so important. This is the context that so many times we miss. What is the issue here in verse 6 of Genesis 3? The primary issue is this. God has the ability to determine what is good and evil, right and wrong. But Eve, when looking at the fruit, what does she do? She determines this is good. 
Apart from God's influence, she makes a decision to determine right and wrong, good and evil for herself, apart from God. That's where, that's where the things, this whole story automatically starts going off the rails. Why is this significant? Because every point of failure and sin in our lives and in the context of the world that we live in is based on one reality. I determine for myself what is good and what is bad, what is right and what is wrong. That is what's gone on for thousands of years. When you look at the world today and the things that you would question and struggle with the most about broken humanity, it always comes down to what? Somebody somewhere made a decision. They knew what was best better than God. They knew right and wrong. They knew good and evil. And they made the determination for themselves, for their life. And that is the unraveling of creation. That is the unraveling of humanity. And so all of us are in this place now where we've decided to play the role of God for ourselves. And when we do that, who do we no longer need in our life? You don't need God anymore. Because now you've decided for yourself, I will determine what is right and what is wrong. I will determine what is good and what is evil. And God, in his graciousness, allows humanity in its foolishness to do that. So what happens as a result of this? If you keep going in Genesis chapter 3, you get to verse 22 and 23, is there's loss. It's the loss of connection with God. It's the loss of relationship. It says in verse 22, it says, Then God, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has come, become like one of us, doing what? Knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and t- take also the tree of life and eat let, and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So they, lo- they lose what? They lose the connection with God. And here's, here's the second part. So we determine what's right and wrong for our lives. We determine what's good and evil. And then in that, we lose connection with God because we no longer need him. And when we do that, we lose meaning. The very reason we're created is to be connected to God because that's what gives us meaning, to be connected to our creator. But now if we don't need him in our life anymore, now we're set off to figure our own meaning and our own value apart from a connection with God. So this is where the story starts for us, and this is where now you move from this peak to an extended valley. And this valley, again, this is where we could take hours and hours and hours and hours, but when we enter into this valley, this is right away, you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God is already in the process of trying to reconnect humanity back to him. Because God won't let it alone, God won't leave you, I love that this is true, God won't leave you and God won't leave you alone, because he keeps pursuing you. And this starts, in Genesis chapter 12, he goes to a guy most of you are familiar with, his man, his man named Abraham. And God speaks to Abraham for one purpose. And this is what it says in, in, in Genesis 12, 2. It says, speaking to Abraham, he, God says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So there's not a lot expanded in there, but what God is talking about is this. Abraham, I'm going to choose you to be the father of my people and through those people, which will be the Jews eventually, I will bless the world. This is not a financial blessing that God is promising, although Abraham ended up to be pretty wealthy. It is the blessing that eventually, Jesus is the one who comes through who? He comes through the Jews. But Jesus wasn't just for the Jews. Jesus was for the whole world. So God starts this in process. And what is God's ultimate goal? Leviticus chapter 26, verses 11 and 12. What is God in the process of doing when he says to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, so eventually through your offspring, the world's going to be blessed. What is God up to? Here's the goal, Leviticus 26. God says this, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. 
what is God describing? He's describing the very thing that Adam and Eve had in the garden. And now he's saying in Leviticus, he's saying to his people at that point, the whole point of the gospel, the whole point of this thing unfolding is so once again, I can be your God because you don't need to be your own God and you will be my people. We will be connected again. This is what God's up to. So this is the unfolding of the gospel. So this is happening in this valley. And then some, to summarize thousands of years of history, if many of you have been in church or you've read the Bible, you know where it goes. God gives them land. He sets them free out of Egypt. They get their own nation in, sense, in terms of their own geographic borders. But what happens when they get that? They forget him. And then he continues to pursue them. God wants to be their God, but what do they do? They reject him, and they say, no, what? you know, we'd rather have an earthly king just like everybody else, but God doesn't quit. God warns them through prophets. He sends people to speak to them about not going down the road they're going down. What do they do? They ignore him. God causes them to lose their land, and you think, man, they, they would, that finally would get their attention, and they continue to what? Make the determination that I know what is right and wrong, what is good and evil, better than God. I don't need God in my life. So Israel's history is humanity's history. Because all of us do that, and all of humanity has done that. But then in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, God says this. He says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. So now, thousands of years ago, through a prophet named Isaiah, what happens is God says, yeah, now we're moving towards that blessing. The blessing is this reality that God will be present with you. He doesn't use the name Jesus yet, but that we know that obviously when we get to Matthew's gospel, that's the very name that is described to highlight the fact that God is with us through Jesus. So that starts to keep moving forward. So now you get through, again, that was just a couple thousand years of history in five minutes. All right, you staying with me? You guys either look like you're really, it's really sinking in. You're like, or I don't know what's going on. Maybe football is in your brain right now, right? So then we reach the second peak. And this is the one we usually land on. But if you don't go to the first peak, you have no reason for the second peak. And by the way, that's why the gospel doesn't make sense to most people in our culture, because we never talk about the first peak. We get to the second peak, which is what? Jesus enters the scene. Jesus shows up. Jesus is born. Jesus comes into the world, who is Emmanuel, which is God with us. What is God doing? Again, he's working towards God being our God, because we don't need a God anymore if we have him, and us being his people. And so what does it say? It says this in, in John chapter 1, verse 29. Listen to what John the Baptist's words when he first saw Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's the sin? The sin is what? I don't need you, God. I can do it on my own. I can determine my life and my meaning and my destiny all on my own. I don't need you. And here, that's the sin. That's the failure. John the Baptist says, Jesus has come to take that away. Why? Because that has led to a disconnect with God. That's why humanity struggles. We don't know who we are, and we don't know how, how to have meaning and value. What? Because we're disconnected from God. That's the most important thing. And then John, 1 John chapter 2, verses 5 and 6 tell us the importance of Jesus' life when he says this. But if anyone who, obey, who obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. That means we're connected. We're following Jesus. Is whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus lives. So what does Jesus do? He comes along, and he says, this is the way you were supposed to live. This is the way Adam and Eve was supposed to live. This is the way humanity is supposed to live. He shows us the way to live. He shows what life is actually supposed to be about. He's the perfect example of that. Why? Because he's perfect. And what we missed thousands of years earlier, Jesus says this is the way it's supposed to look. But knowing that we can't live that life, why? Because we're still disconnected from God. So then he decides, obviously, he's going to go to the cross. And then 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. For our sake he made him, talking of Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What did Jesus do? He took on our sin on the cross so that, what are we? Now, righteousness, by the way, is just means I'm right with God. My relationship is restored back to God. So Jesus takes on him all of my points, every point in my life where I decided to do it on my own and to determine right and wrong for myself. Jesus takes that on the cross and crucifies my sin so that now what I'm right with God again, I'm reconnected with God. But then to, de- to demonstrate his perfection and his power, he rises from the dead, which Romans chapter 6, verse 5, and then verse 8 says this, for if we have been united with him in, in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, which means that no longer, now we're connected with God, but now we're connected with God forever because death is dealt with. Death is the ultimate separation between humanity and God, and now Jesus is taking care of that one. That's why Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is so important. Why? Because it deals with all the things that happen at the beginning of time. It deals with everything that happens every day of our lives that we find meaning and purpose again in Jesus. So we come down from that mountain peak, number two, which is redemption, and then we find ourselves in a valley, and here's the coolest part about the valley. God doesn't leave us. Jesus goes back to the Father. We know that. He ascends back to the Father. But then he sends his spirit to his people. Why? Because now, now this is where the gospel becomes not just something that's to us. It's something that goes right through us. And here's, here's a passage that you've probably heard a million times if you've been in Antioch any amount of time. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. It says, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am always with you to the end of the age. Jesus is with us. Why? Because now he's, and this is, how do we know? Acts, this is Acts 1.8. Remember, we were in resurgence. We were in Acts for a whole year. It says this, and Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit uh, has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is crazy. So Jesus does all this. He corrects what went wrong at the beginning. He makes it available to everybody. And then he says, now it is your responsibility, just like, just like it was our responsibility to steward creation at the beginning of time, it's our responsibility to steward the gospel for the remainder of time. Which means, and what does that mean? Well, are you kidding me? Go tell everybody about how good it is that Jesus is going to reconnect them with God. And then, by the way, in the process, tell them to obey God. Oh, that's really easy, isn't it? It's impossible. And that's why Jesus says that you will receive power to be my witnesses. So he gives us the Holy Spirit who comes and dwells inside of us and empowers us to do the thing that seems impossible to humanity. And that means you have to remember our responsibility is what? It is to demonstrate the power of God through our actions and tell the story of God through our words. That is the, that is the primary responsibility of a follower of Jesus from the time you, are, you come to know Jesus till the time you die. I demonstrate the power of God through my life and I tell the story of Jesus through my words to other people. This is what the gospel is. And so we, we reach that. And then from there, now we, again, we're, we're in this valley now. We're in this season where Jesus hasn't returned yet. And he's expecting his church, his people, to do the very things he said. You're going to go and you're going to tell people about me and you're going to help them to learn to follow me. And that's what's going to be your story until I return or until you die. That's what we're supposed to do. But then eventually... We know that Jesus will return. He said he would return. He's going to come back someday. And by the way, we know why he hasn't come back. It's not a, it's not a mystery. 
I'm like, oh, why hasn't Jesus come back? I've mentioned this before because in Matthew chapter 24, verse 14, Jesus says, and this gospel, the good news, the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to every tongue, tribe, and nation, and then the end will come. That's the reason Jesus hasn't come back. Why? Because there are still, from last count, between three and 5,000 people groups in the world today that don't have a Bible in their language and don't have the gospel that they have access to. And until they hear the good news and they hear about Jesus and how he can reconnect them to God, we're not going anywhere. And that's why, that's why it, Peter actually says this in 2 Peter. He says, what well, God is patient, not wanting anyone to perish. That's why Jesus isn't coming back, because he's waiting. He might be waiting in heaven with his foot tapping like, I'd really like to come back, but boy, you guys, I've given it to you. I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit. I've given you the message. You can do this. It's crazy. Because of technology and because we're the church today, in our lifetime, we could accomplish this. We could. It's if we have the courage and the boldness. So we eventually reach the third peak, which is restoration of all things. And that's when Jesus returns. And obviously you have, we won't go through all of that, but you have obviously those who have said yes to Jesus and have, have given their lives to him and, and surrendered to him. Those will go to be with God forever. And those who have rejected and said, I continue wanting to determine for myself what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, then what, what does that person get? They get what they've asked for their entire life. They get separation from God forever. So that's why hell is not unjust. Actually, hell is, is very just, and that is that God ultimately gives humanity what it's been asking for its entire life. And so because of that, there's this opportunity. So what, what does that mean? What is God restoring? Well, here's the good news if you've connected with Jesus is in Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, I read this last week, what heaven looks like. It's made up of all nations. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So what is that? That's God, again, now his people are in his presence, and it's who? It's all these people from all these different backgrounds and different nationalities and different ethnicities and different languages. So what is the ultimate goal where this whole thing ends? Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. What was lost in the garden is gained in eternity. Listen, it says this in verses 1 through 3. Then I saw a new heaven. This is the vision that John has been given by God. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, and here it is, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. That's the goal. That's what God is up to is what Adam and Eve and what all of us would have lost in the garden, which is what I want to do it myself. I want to be my own God. I want to determine for myself what meaning looks like and good and bad and right, right and wrong. And then we lose the relationship with God. And through all of human history, God is in the process of what? Reconciling everything back to him through Jesus so that someday God can look at his people once again who are now what? Washed and forgiven and cleansed and purified and right with him. And he can say, now... You are my people, and I am your God. That's what it's about. And that's why it's so important for us, if you're a follower of Jesus, to know the gospel. Because I'm telling you, most people in our culture today are not opposed to the gospel. 
They're opposed to Christians and the church because we've somehow misrepresented the truth of who God is. A recent study came out and they said the majority of people who don't go to church and would call themselves non-Christians are open to a conversation about who God is. But we don't think that they are. Why? Because they push back on Christians, they push back on the church. Why? Because they don't know. And here's the thing that we have to understand. The good news is good news to somebody who realizes the issue they have is a relational issue. It isn't somehow that God is some big ogre in heaven that just is in a bad mood and he wants to make your life horrible and boring and keep you confined. No, it's because you've lost purpose and meaning because you're disconnected from who he is. And when people hear that, that something starts to make sense of every decision you and I have ever made in our life to determine what is right for us apart from God, which happens every day. So this is the story of God, and it's, it's defined by a few things that's, that are printed out on our wall in the lobby that have to do with Jesus. With Jesus, like Jesus, for Jesus. With Jesus is God, what? We're being reconciled back to God through Jesus. Like Jesus is what? Is becoming like him, the perfect life he lived. That's the way we're supposed to live. Why? Because the ultimate goal of our lives is not glory for us. It's worship of God. It's to make God look good, which is for him. That's what our church is about. That's why we exist. It's the gospel. So two other things, the purpose and the goal of the gospel. So I mentioned earlier, so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Let me go ahead and read that, and then we're going to look at portions of that because it answers what the purpose and the goal of the gospel is. So starting in verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This is Paul saying these words. This is the whole kind of gospel in a nutshell, is this concept of reconciliation. So what is the purpose of the gospel? You see that in verses 17 through the first part of verse 19, is this concept of reconciliation. So God, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, is reconciling everything back to to him. And that includes us. And this is what's important. The gospel always starts with the gospel to you, the gospel that comes to you, the good news that comes to you. Because if you are living apart from God, you need the gospel to come to you. You need to be met where you're at. And that's the beauty of the gospel, that it comes to us first. And that means that as it comes to us, you and I have to understand this is the reality of our lives. And it's true if you're a follower of Jesus and even if you're not. When we live disconnected from God, we never live the life God created us to live. It's actually possible to live 60, 70, 80, 90, 100 years and never be the person you were created to be because you did it apart from God. That's the tragedy. It's not unlike if each one of our houses or apartments or condos, wherever you live, is designed to function with one element it cannot live without, electricity. Anybody ever had a power outage? That is a pain, isn't it? Nothing works the way it's supposed to. Your refrigerator doesn't freeze or refrigerate unless it's what? Connected to electricity. Maybe more important, your TV does not turn on unless it's connected to electricity. 
Your garage door opener that's automatic every time doesn't function unless it's connected to electricity. So what do you, what you have? You have something that looks good but does nothing. It can't fulfill its purpose. It's meaningless. The same thing is true when humanity is disconnected from God. It can never be fully who it's supposed to be. And that's the tragedy of watching somebody walk through this life and, and, and reflect the image of God and who they're created to be and see the capacity of humanity to do incredible things creatively and with technology. And, and just imagine for a moment if those lives were connected to the God who created them, what their lives would look like. That's what it's supposed to be like. And that's what God is getting at, that, that the life we're supposed to live, the people we're supposed to be, are supposed to be free from this thing called sin that always keeps us from being who God wants us to be. That's why the gospel is good news. It's good news. Why? Because you can be who God created you to be because you're not being who you're supposed to be. You're being who you think you're supposed to be and you've fallen short of what God created you to be. That's the good news of the gospel. And then there's a, the last thing, the goal of the gospel, the last couple verses, is not only have we been reconciled, but what does now Paul say? Now God has given you the ministry of reconciliation. Now you are ambassadors of reconciliation. That means we receive the gospel that comes to us, but guess what? When the gospel comes to you, it always will end up going through you. That's part of it. You and I are not a dead end to the gospel. The gospel doesn't reach a period at the, when it comes to us. There's a comma as it pauses to transform our souls, and then it flows right through us to other people who need it. Because the re reality of every person in this room who's ever made a commitment to Jesus, the gospel came to somebody else first before it came to you. And if they, they view the gospel as a period in their life, you would never know Jesus. But because somebody saw the gospel as a comma in their life, they realized there's other people that need to know this. There's other people that need to experience this reconnection with God. So this is the gospel that flows through us. So this is the good news. And here's the reality. And this is, what, this is one of the things I know I go back and forth. We sang that song earlier, As You Find Me. And we, that song basically talks about the tension of, in one moment, getting it right, and in the next moment, getting it wrong. And that's the tension that we live in. But when we sing a song like that, I, I'm looking around the room, and I know that each one of us expresses our, ourselves to God differently, but I know one thing's for sure, when the gospel drops, it overwhelms you with passion. It, it changes the way you view God. It removes your fear of what other people think of you because you're so consumed with what God has done in you. And that's what it should be. The gospel should be such good news that you and I cannot shut up. Think about a moment in your life that was like amazing, which was like life-changing. For me, a number of those things, obviously coming to know Jesus, but the other high points of my life is marrying Kim and having Courtney and Jordan. Well, I didn't have them. Kim pushed them out, okay? So, but I did play a role in it, okay? So those are incredible moments. So if you've ever been married or when you, I know when Kim and I got engaged, I told everybody. I was just a little bit excited. When, when Kim got pregnant, I told everybody. And when Courtney was born, I told everybody, right? Why? Because it's something that's so amazing. It's such good news to you. You can't shut up. And when we hear the gospel that's been laid out in all of human history and God has orchestrated everything to reconnect people back to God and he's still doing it today, and that means that I get meaning in life, that means I get reconnected with God to experience why I was created, and that's secure in, in for eternity because what Jesus has done, that's good news. And sometimes I wonder, do we really believe it? 
because we're so passive about it. It doesn't mean you have to be a raving evangelist and tell every person you walk up to, but there's something inside of us when the gospel drops, you can't be quiet about it. And maybe it's because we don't know the gospel, or maybe it's because we don't believe the gospel. But if the gospel is good news to me, then it has to be good news to everybody. Because the only conclusion I have is if the gospel's not good news to people around me, then somehow it's not good news to me. Because I'll keep the bad news to myself, but I'm going to tell good news to everybody. It's good news. It's good news to my neighbor. It's good news to my coworker. It's good news to my family that doesn't know Jesus yet. But in what context? What I love about the gospel is Jesus never started with behavior. He started with the core issue. You're disconnected from God. And the only way you ever get to behavior is when you get reconnected with God. And that's why Jesus said, what? Go make disciples, which is followers of me. And then, after they're a disciple, after they're following me, then address their behavior. Which means what? Learn to obey. So we start with behavior. Jesus starts with reconnection to God. And I'm convinced the culture that we live in would be so relieved to know that the good news to them is that God says you're less than who you're supposed to be because you're disconnected from God. Why don't you see your life through a different lens? Why don't you give your life to Jesus and see what he might do in your life that's better than anything you could ever create on your own? So this is important. And what I'm gonna end with, I'm gonna play a video. It's about 10 minutes. If you've gone through a line, you've seen it. I played it a million times and I play it for myself and watch it periodically because it reminds me what the gospel is. It's a, a poet named Matt Papa, and he wrote the gospel in 10 minutes. And he presents this, and I want you just to watch it because it covers what we covered in, in some similar ways. But this is the gospel. This is the gospel that we know. Not the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although that's included in it. It's not just Jesus' death and resurrection. It is the whole gospel story from the beginning to the end. And we're in the middle of it right now, and it should inspire us to live our lives differently. Why? To be transformed by the gospel so we can share the gospel with other people. Let's go ahead and watch this together. Let me tell you a story. It's no ordinary tale. No, it's the ordinary from which every other story hails. It's the story of God. It's the story of history. And I'm not the author, no. The author is a glorious mystery. See, long before he would put his pen to the paper, long before there was time or before there was matter, he was there all alone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. One God in three persons, everlasting in existence. Completely satisfied, needing absolutely nothing. He was happy in himself and his joy was overflowing. The Son in the arms of his holy, righteous Father, the Spirit overshadowing, all glorifying one another. So why would this God even bother to create? The fountain of all happiness, can you improve upon this state? Well, the joy within himself welling up at such capacity was so full it must be shared with a glorious society. So the mighty author, quill in hand, to share his infinite mind, his love, his joy, sat down to write his once upon a time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made all things to reflect his beauty and his worth. Mountains, rivers, oceans, trees, all gladly testifying. Endless stars and galaxies declare his glory shining. He made it all and it was good. And to culminate his work, he fashioned man and breathed to life his special ball of dirt. Man came to life with blinking eyes and was welcomed by God's face. They walked with him every day and night. There was peace and no such thing as shame. 
God said, be fruitful, fill the earth, and eat from any tree except for this one, because if you do, you'll surely fall from me. Now, why do this and give this choice? Because he is writing a story, and he's about to show the whole world the fullness of his glory. Conflict enters early on in the script with a snake in the garden doing what he does best, running his lip. Flashback to when this evil was created. He was an angel of heaven who fell when his head got inflated. Banished from God and from his endless mercy, he came down to earth to tempt us with the unworthy. So there in the garden on an ordinary day, he came to the woman and said, Did God really say that you should not eat from every tree in the garden? He must not want your happiness or you'd have total freedom. So pridefully they listened, sinfully they took, and scorned their creator as they ate forbidden fruit. Injustice, my friends, this is injustice. That God should be seen and then treated as a nothing. That man should completely forfeit his joy and dig for fleeting pleasures in the gutters of this world. Fallen now is all mankind and sure to face his judgment. A world of pain, of toil and strain and hell forever after. But God would make a promise to preserve himself a people. And through the brokenness of Mano, could there shine a hero? The plot line continues, some character development, all supporting actors, all fantastic as embellishment. Noah found favor in God's holy sight, and when God sent the floods, he mercifully preserved his life. We come to Abraham, and God made him a covenant. He said, I will bless you, make your offspring abundant. To Isaac and to Jacob, God would come and do the same, and though many dangers came to threaten his perfect plan, the story would go on with the author's full control, and he would lead his people everywhere that they should go. Flash forward now 400 years, in Egypt there's a Pharaoh who doesn't like God's people growing numerous in freedom. He made them slaves, but God came down and chose his servant Moses, a burning bush, a call to go. His presence was his promise. Moses, tell that Pharaoh now to let my people go so they can freely worship me in the place that I will show. Plagues numerous, God will prove that he is the I am, that Pharaoh's rule is like a pawn in his glorious hand. The waters part, the millions leave to follow their great savior. He guided them, provided for them, though they were so ungrateful. At Sinai, God gave the law so perfect and so pure. His people soon discovered, though, they could not obey these rules. They tried, they failed, they tried, they failed, compelled to live in sin. They'd bow to worship idols and they'd bow to God again. They said to God, give us a king and that will make things better. God, their rightful king, assured them this would be a fetter. They insisted, God relented, gave to them their kings. Some were good, led them to him, some brought idolatry. Then came the prophets, turn back to God. Sometimes the people listened, but mostly they just gave a nod because they all wanted to be him. God will not wink at your sin, the prophets would all say. The people rose to eat and drink, they left to go and play. God finally seemed to have enough and brought a blaring quiet. The prophets ceased, the people waited 400 years of silence. Enter our protagonist, mostly unannounced. The plot is quickly rising now. Who is this guy? Nobody really knows. He's meek, he's humble, an ordinary hero. But the craziest thing about this character is, well, unlike the other characters, this is the author himself. His name was Jesus. He was born of a virgin, fully God. He was perfect, fully man. He was learning, different from all the others, but tempted just the same in every single way we are, yet without a single sin. He made the lame to jump and he caused the blind to see. And unlike the religious leaders, he had some real authority because he came from on high and he came to redeem not to be served but to serve his haters and enemies he loved he gave showed us the heart of the author claimed no glory for himself because he came from his father and we hated him for it because we wanted to be God despised and rejected we esteemed him not 
Conflict escalating now. It starts with a betrayal. Judas whores his eternal Lord for 30 pieces of silver. A final meal of prayer, and then they head into the garden where Jesus sweat with drops of blood, preparing for our pardon. The soldiers took the Lord away and led him to a trial. Are you the Son of God? They say, I am. There's no denying, except, of course, for his disciples who left their Lord in fear. Jesus looked up to the sky. He was all alone from here. They led him to the praetorium and then they began to beat him. Who hit you? They would shout and say, oh father, please forgive him. They made his back a bloody mess. They whipped him till he lost his breath. They threw the cross upon his wounds, the weight of sin, 300 pounds. The great eternal Lord of all, the author of all things, now like a lamb unto the slaughter. Would this be his defeat? They nailed him to the rugged cross. They shouted out, where is your God? He said, have you forsaken me? He takes a breath, his final three. It is finished. The Savior's cry, and then he bowed his head. The author of life, the Lord of all, the Son of God, is dead. They laid his body in a tomb. Then everything was quiet, as God's people find themselves again in everlasting silence. Two days pass. On the second morning after Jesus died, Mary went to the tomb to take a look inside. And when she arrived, she was met by an angel. She fell to the ground, but he said, there's no danger. This Jesus, Jesus, is he the one you seek? Mary, he is not here. He is risen indeed. Climax is true. Every good story has one. That part where you feel a slight shift of momentum. Mary sprints to go tell the other disciples, the Lord, he's alive. He's alive like he promised. Peter and John go to see for themselves, but there's nothing there. Perhaps he truly lives. Then Jesus' words came flashing to mind. They will kill the Son of Man, but after three days, he will rise. Momentum is surely building now. The enemy is limping. Jesus finds the 12, and then he gives to them the mission. All authority is mine, all in heaven and on earth. Go and tell them I'm alive. Go and tell the whole wide world, and don't get slack. I'm coming back. Acts now, the church is born, the Holy Spirit given. The news of Jesus, like the most contagious sickness spreading. Thousands saved, a mighty wind is blowing through the region. The promise God gave to Abraham, we're finally starting to see it. Repentance and forgiveness preached all in the name of Jesus. Sinners and saints alike proclaim our God has come to save us. The Gentiles hear the story and the news is blowing up. The plan is working, gospel spreading from Asia to Africa. Martyrs laying down their lives because they know this story is true. It's a story like no other. It's a movement you cannot undo. Constantine tried to slow it down and turn it into steeples, but an angry monk from Germany wrote some holy gospel thesis. It spread like fire and then it came to America by sale and here we are the 21st century because the gospel cannot fail it's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known but there is some still left to go yes there is some still left to go see go was the command to every tribe and nation to carry this great story to this dying generation because when this gospel finally spreads across the whole of earth we're going to hear a trumpet sound and Jesus will return heaven will be opened and a white horse shall appear and the one who sits upon it all his enemies shall fear his eyes will be like fire and his purpose will be glory justice for all evil life for all who love this story He'll come to judge the quick, the dead, and all who trod this world. Every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Death and Hades he will throw into the lake of fire, and Satan too, that serpent foe, that coward, that old liar. The church will rise, surround the throne, and clothed in glory his. With every tribe and tongue, we will worship him, singing, worthy, worthy is the lamb, the lamb who has been slain. Blessing and honor, glory and power forever to his name, and for ages 
ages and ages, we will sing the praises of our God and King. It's the greatest story that's ever been told by the greatest author the world has ever known. Yeah, the bad guys lose, the good guys win. Jesus is Lord of all the end. So would you just go ahead and close your eyes? I want you to just, I know there's the emotion of what's stirring and in, in hearing the, the gospel laid out in such a concise but complete way. So important that each one of us take personally what you've heard today. I want to begin by talking to two groups of people. First, those who I know I fall into this boat. You've been around church for a while. Maybe you got saved when you were a kid. And you've had seasons where God's done some great things, but your, your faith has become routine. It's become sometimes apathetic. It's something that doesn't seem to have life to it. And so somehow you become disconnected from the reality and the truth of the gospel in your life. You're just doing Christianity. God has so much more for you. Jesus died for more than the life that you're living, not for you to work harder, not for you to try to be a better person, but for you to surrender yourself, your agenda, your hopes, your dreams, your life that you've created. Even though there's a Christian label on it, it's still at its core you determining what is best for you. You determining what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, and then asking God to bless the plans you've made for your life instead of saying, God, what do you have for me? If that's you today, there is hope for you. There is hope that you can once again re-engage the truth of the gospel. You can once again be reconnected to God in such a way that your life is no longer about you carrying the weight of trying to be God, but about surrendering to the one and only God who can give you meaning and purpose. Doesn't mean that your problems disappear. Doesn't mean that life becomes easy. But one thing it does become is it becomes fulfilling because you finally have meaning again. Why? Because you're a part of this story that you've forgotten that you're living out. You're a part of the gospel story. You're a part of God's history. And the gospel has come to you and God wants to ignite it in such a way that it flows through you. But then there's a second group of people. If you are honest with yourself today, you know the gospel's never really come to you. You might have heard this story before. You know some of the names. You know some of the events. You know some of the Bible verses. But it's not ever really penetrated your soul. And if you look at your life and you're honest with yourself, you'd say, yeah, my life is me. My life is my wisdom, my destiny, my selfishness, my determination, all of the things. I do it for me. I really don't need God in my life. But now when you look at your life and honestly you look at your life and you say, I can't do this. I've made a mess of my life. There's hope for you as well because God has not stopped pursuing you your entire life. Every failure, every disconnect from him, every decision to do it your own way, God was still there. God was still present because he's waiting for you to turn and to realize 
the thing that you've been trying to find, the thing that you've been trying to place into your life to bring fulfillment and contentment has never, ever been something you could grasp on your own. It's only something you can find by surrendering yourself to Jesus. And if that's what your desire is today, then I'm going to pray in a moment. I'm going to encourage you that you make a decision to surrender yourself in such a way that you no longer are going to call the shots. Because in surrendering, what happens is that we turn over all of our life, not just our desires to make things good and better in our destinies, but we surrender our sin and our brokenness and we admit we've tried it and we failed on our own. And then the God of the universe stands waiting with arms open to say, yeah, now let me show you what life can be like. Let me get reconnected with you so that in this life and in the life that comes next after our death in this plant on this world in the life that comes next that we can be God's people and God can be our God the reason why we are created so I'm going to pray in a moment I'm going to pray for both of those categories of people and where you're at right now that you would surrender if it's again for you, again, re-engaging the gospel, the good news, the fact that God's at work, or for the first time saying, I'm surrendering to Jesus, then you begin to just pray right where you're at. You begin to speak because God hears you when you talk. God even knows your thoughts. You begin to surrender him. So Lord Jesus, we thank you that even Lord in that video, the gospel cannot and will not fail. But Lord, I ask that for those here where the gospel has yet to come to them, they have yet to experience the truth of Jesus, your love for them, your death, your resurrection, that reconciliation, that reconnection back to God. Lord, I pray right now for courage for each one of those, those people who are here, that they would surrender themselves fully to you. They would no longer look forward into the future of what their desires are or what their plan is, but Lord, they would submit that and surrender that to you. What is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. Lord, what you have for them, and they would give their lives to you today. And then Lord, for many of us, the rest of us, Lord, would you, by your spirit, would you again empower us to see there's more to be done, that we're in this valley in this sustained period of time because Jesus, you loved us, but you love people and now you want the gospel to flow through us and you want us to live out the life that you created us to live. So Holy Spirit, would you fill us as you did your, the, Jesus, the follow, your followers 2,000 years ago and you do it today, that you would empower us, you would give us courage, you would help us to overcome our comfort and our fear and our, 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 Lord, all of the things that keep us from being people who are passionate, excited about this good news for everybody around us, Lord, would you remove those barriers so that just like us, how the gospels come to us, Lord, the gospel would come to so many others through our lives. We thank you, Jesus, for what you're doing in us today.